represents Apocalypse Clown. In this episode, Neil talks to frequent podcast collaborator James Dean about his new film as producer, the Irish comedy Apocalypse Clown, as it debuts on Netflix. Neil and James discuss the making of the film, as well as the place of comedy in film culture more broadly. This subject is picked up by Dario and Neil in their discussion, which looks at the strange and offers contentious split between serious and comedic cinema, highbrow cinephilia and broad comedy. In the first release of a special doubleheader, Neil also discusses the crowdfunder campaign for a new film about folklorist Doc Rowe, directed by friends of the pod, Tim Plester and Rob Curry. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend, Neil Fox. Neil, good to see you. And you. It's really nice to be here. And yeah, I hope you're doing well on this very special day for the podcast, where we're taping <laughs> a double header. Yeah, I guess I guess it is, actually, in terms of, uh, in terms of that. We've done some episodes that have been quite kind of close together before, but this, this is a kind of specific double header that are two films that are completely unrelated and actually com- completely different, in, you know, really. But we just got the interviews at the same time and the release dates on on digital, on streaming, is qu- are quite close together. So it's an interesting couple of films, I think, in terms of the subjects themselves and also the fact of these kinds of, these two kinds of movies going onto, onto streaming and, and maybe what that says about um, what kinds of films are being made and targeted straight towards uh, towards streaming? Um, but Neil, you wanted to just very quickly mention something about a uh, a Kickstarter campaign that you're involved with. Yeah, so uh, the filmmakers Tim Plester and Rob Curry are who we've had on the podcast for their film The Ballad of Shirley Collins uh, a few years back are making a film about Doc Rowe, who's a folklorist. He's a, an amazing sort of archivist of folk and calendar custom traditions in the in the British Isles and he's got this kind of 60-year archive um, of kind of physical and uh, sort of audiovisual material and Tim and Rob are making a film about his life and also about kind of the the push to get the archive protected for, for sort of future generations um, so they've got um, I'm involved in the in the film uh, from the Sound Image Cinema Lab uh, we're, sort of, we're sort of involved in supporting the film in terms of post-production and but but the one of the wonderful things about this campaign is that part of the part of the the plan is to get the material that they need for the film the documentary they're making digitized but but because they've spent so long with doc and sort of spent so much time in this archive they kind of really would love to sort of to do something good and 
and try and protect the kind of the the moving image material that is in there um, in its entirety. So they've set a very ambitious um, crowdfunding campaign uh, to get everything that's kind of audio visual that relates to calendar customs archived, uh, digitized uh, and protected for the future. Um, the film's going to be brilliant. I've seen some bits of it. I've sort of done some work in progress, uh, sort of conversations with them. Um, they're great filmmakers. They're lovely people. And this this archive is is astounding uh, in terms of the all the different parts of the the British Isles that it covers everywhere from Cornwall up to Scotland. Um, and yeah, kind of things that people will know about, including like Padstow May Day and like Jack of the Green at Hastings. But then also some less familiar sort of calendar customs that are just kind of astounding and still going strong uh all over all over the place so yeah th- th- that campaign is just open and it'd be great if people um could just either pledge a little bit which would be lovely but also and because there's some really fantastic rewards there but also yeah just kind of spread the word and hopefully kind of protect this amazing cultural archive yes yeah, and i had a quick look at the uh at, at the sort of kickstarter you know front page and everything like that and the um what's the ad but the, the you know the kind of trailer and what have you have you and uh, yeah it just looks a, an interesting and worthy film related archival project that you know so interestingly i think you know these kinds of things sitting in the in the era of streaming and in the era of where cinema doesn't have that kind of automatic well it's worth preserving it's, it's filmed material so it's worth preserving you know association which you know probably was inherent to the the way we understand cinema culture before digital kind of became the default so you know it's in in some ways it's a bit sad that this kind of thing isn't taken up from a kind of heritage standpoint but great that that it's got such a that that it it's great that it's being championed you know by these two two filmmakers and 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 clearly there's going to be a wealth of material that you know are going to be probably interesting not just to people watching but but to academics as well in terms of research maybe oh yeah i mean i think that there have been sort of ongoing uh, conversations and, and 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 partnerships established to to preserve bits of the archive, but it's it's a very slow process because there's just so much of it, and it's so geographically dispersed. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is a way of kind of raising awareness, and the, the film is part of that as well. Yeah, because I think that there's not there's not just kind of individual communities that will be- benefit from seeing this stuff. It is yeah, there's a kind of there's a there's a wider cultural benefit to to this material that 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 is um that is at the heart of this. Great. Sounds great. So we'll put a link to that on the show notes. So please, uh, cinephiles out there, check check that out. Okay, so let's let's get on to the first film of our double header, which focuses on a fantastic new comedy produced by great friend of the podcast James Dean, and the film's called Apocalypse Clown. Neil, why don't you just give us a little bit of context, and we'll get into the interview. Yeah, so Apocalypse Clown, obviously, with its very kind of cinematically knowing uh, title, is a yeah kind of a road trip set across Ireland, uh, which follows a group of clowns and uh, who are kind of trying to turn the power back on after a kind of apocalyptic event uh, in in Ireland. And yeah, it's it's developed and delivered by the team behind the kind of the comedy uh, music troupe, uh, Dead Cat Bounce. Who James has been sort of wanting to make a film with for a very long time, and this, as the interview sort of makes clear, this has been a project that's been in the works for a very long time, and yeah, it's it's been amazing to sort of see James's dedication to this group of filmmakers and to this project over a long time. So it felt really nice to be able to 
to celebrate his work um, that was kind of out there in the world uh, in cinemas and then, yeah, now uh, on streaming because it hits Netflix this week. So I caught up with James last week just before the film drops on Netflix to talk about how it all came together and the space of comedy in sort of film culture more broadly. In a world on the brink of chaos, as darkness takes hold, three heroes emerge with big hearts and even bigger shoes. What are we looking at? I'm trapped in a box while screaming. Okay, the other hand isn't helping. The world has gone dark. There's something big going on here, and if I'm right, it's bigger than all of us. Me and Harold got history and a future, by the looks of it. Oh, what the fuck are you doing? Did I read the moment wrong? The world was done with clowning. It moved on to TikTok dances and live streaming hand jobs and art. None of that works now. Everything is obsolete except us. The world is ours now. We're forming a troop. Clown pedo. You know, like a torpedo of clowns. This is our chance to win back the woman that I love. If I don't make it out of there, tell the world I died with dignity. You want us to lie? Well, no. Just imply that I was wearing trousers. Laughter is the only sane response to a meaningless existence. Everyone dreams of dying doing what they love. Say we go out clowning. Hello, James. Hi, Neil. It's lovely to have you back on the podcast in the capacity of filmmaker as opposed to co-host or kind of guest in the audience. I know, yeah, it's it's great actually. It's as with so many people who strive to make films. Um, you know, it's such a precarious business. It's much easier to show up um, as a co-host uh, than it is as a filmmaker. But um, yeah, I'm over the moon to uh, to have made a film after many years of trying um, and very happy to talk about it on The Cinematologist. Me too. Me too. Yeah, it's it's a delight to have you here in this, in this way. Um, I want to start quite big um, with the the idea of comedy really and 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 where it sits in cinema but also where it sits for you you know i mean you, you mentioned there that you've made a sort of feature film you know first film in a long time but it's not comedy is something you you seem increasing you have always been drawn to you know like this is Jinsey on tv but even way back to your first shorts the Sh- shrink which is how we met back in 2001 you know very funny really kind of in tune with sort of you know the comedy genre so I just I wondered like yeah what comedy means to you and then you know sort of where you think comedy's at really in terms of uh films I think comedy has always been my favorite genre um if I had to choose um you know obviously as a as a cinephile you know which I know with with you guys um you know we like all types of films and that's the beauty of cinema is you can you can 
have the the absolute broadest range um and you know when i first was uh you know cinema was kind of opening up to me you know you you weren't even aware of genre you just watched things and you liked what you liked and then the more you understand what's going on or you have favorite directors then you realize that um there are genres but for some reason comedy has always been something that um that i love probably more than other genres and so when it came to myself creatively um trying to uh you know work um and create then comedy was was the thing that i seemed to uh to gravitate towards so yeah with with the short where we met uh for film stock shrink that was obviously um you know a pretty broad comedy um about a man who can't get it up and then um when i got into television for the first time in a scripted way um we made this is jinsy which is a very absurdist comedy that ran for two seasons on sky and i remember people had this very strong reaction to it which was um Firstly, we were a very small production company and a new production company. And there was definitely a sense of how did you get this commission, you know, because there were already very established comedy production companies doing what they did. And then we turned up and got, you know, these commissions are so uh, prized. And we got one from the newly established comedy department at Sky. Um, And it was extremely bizarre and wonderful program. Um, created by Chris Brown and Justin Chubb. And there was, there was a sense then of how, why have Sky chosen this? Um, and, uh, you know, I can always remember a, there was a tweet that went out when it first went to air that said, what the hell am I watching? Um, and so, yeah, I've always liked comedy of a more absurd brand, really. But, you know, I, I like all sorts of different comedies. But... Um, it seems more of a challenge sometimes or just feels more original to make to make comedy that um is just a little bit different and not not so mainstream um so that's sort of yeah been my journey towards it and apocalypse clown i think definitely has absurdist elements you know even though we we see it as a film that has no real message and is just about landing those jokes thick and fast um you know, it's it still has its absurdist qualities, especially in the character of Funzo. Absolutely, yeah. And I definitely want to talk about Funzo uh, and, and the casting in a bit. And the other thing about comedy is that, um, for instance, the Sight and Sound released their top 100 films of all time um, last year, you know, which really captured the imagination of cinephiles and film people, especially with Jean Dielman at number one out of nowhere. Um, but I was looking how many comedies are in the top 100 and I counted seven. Um, the General, Modern Times, The Apartment, Sherlock Jr., Some Like It Hot, City Lights and Playtime. I think Playtime's in colour, but <laughs> all the others are black and white. Playtime was 57 years ago Mm. so it's incredible to me that there's no comedy from the last 57 years that is valued enough to make it into the top 100 films of all time and that just tells you 
where comedy is in the sort of firmament of film criticism and and how it's viewed um yeah and that yeah. to me is is kind of really sad yeah and it's it's kind of why i wanted to put a an out and out comedy in my list you know um which i did with uh elaine may's a new leaf um but even then that was what, 71 so yeah i mean it's it's amazing to think that there's nothing in there that and it, a lot of dramas have cl- climbed haven't they you know like Mulholland Drive or In the Mood for Love or Beau Travai, but comedy uh, is kind of unrepresented. Um, but it is, and yet it's the genre that gets rewatched the most mm. because people, you can watch a comedy multiple times and enjoy a joke when you know the punchline. Yeah. Whereas drama, you obviously can rewatch dramas and we all do, but it has slightly diminishing returns because, you know, there's nothing like experiencing the emotion of a drama for the first time. Um, But with comedy, it sometimes gets better with time or funnier with time. You know, if you watch Spinal Tap, I mean, just the anticipation of turning it up to 11 is, uh, you know, is funny before it's even said, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's just surprising to me and I can't explain it, but people just don't value comedy in the same way as they do drama. Which is a shame because it's one of the hardest things to do, you know. To make people laugh is 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 arguably harder than making them cry, um, but it's not it's not valued as a craft. And like you say, there's something about rewatching, you know, which I think is why there's the Keaton features so, you know, so so frequently. It's like rewatching someone, and you know, I remember th- watching watching Jim Carrey in the '90s, you know, like Dumb and Dumber, Rose Ventura, and just rewatching, thinking like, how's he? How's he actually doing that physically? Like, how is that? How is that possible for a person to do that? And just marveling at the kind of the clowning aspect of it. Um, and it's a shame that we don't marvel at that stuff in the same way we marvel at great shots, you know, or great camera moves, like the the people actually doing the thing. Um, yeah, and 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 the stuff from Apocalypse Clown that's kind of sat with me overnight is it's just these lines, you know, just these deliveries, um, like when Jenny says, you know. Oh, that's bleak. <laughs> it's just like, oh man, oh, it just oh, it just absolutely broke me. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's it's a real shame that, that we don't we don't ha- we don't have the same relationship with comedy film that we have with, with with drama film. I think it's really good context for what we're talking about, which was, and then then in the next. In the top 250, it's still Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, Dr. Strangelove, Pink Flamingos, incredible, <laughs> in at 211. Sneak it in. Duck Classic suit. John Waters. My favourite film, Annie Hall, and then Sullivan's Travel. So, and then the latest of that is Annie Hall, 1977. Yeah, which is still 40. Yeah, yeah. 40, yeah. Very, 40, 45, 46 years ago. Yeah, it's nuts, really. Mm. It's just what would people you... are, yeah, what would you have in there? What would you have in there from post eighty? I would definitely put like Grand Budapest Hotel or Tenenbaums, mm. being John Malkovich, you know, one of the Spike Joneses or Charlie Kaufman's Midnight Run, you know, Midnight and Eddie Run. Murphy. Yeah, what's yeah. up, Doc? I don't know. Spinal just, Tap, you mentioned as well. Spinal Tap definitely is in my top ten. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, even Kim, King of Comedy, if we want to go with Marty, but it's, mm. you know, sort of, Widnall and I obviously is big cult favorite in the yeah. UK. But that kind of what the hell am I watching is 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 an interesting response 
to Jinsi, but I think it's kind of, you know, probably something that a lot of particularly British critics are probably thinking when they watch it due to the, just the dearth of, of that kind of film. When I was watching it, I was like, I I haven't seen a film like this in such a, such a time, you know? Um, So it kind of feels like a film out of time, but because of the way that comedy as a genre in the, in sort of mainstream cinema space has shifted so, so dramatically from sort of the, the eighties and nineties particularly. Yeah, we, we talked about this all the time that when we were pitching it, what films was it like? Um, what and you know we were sort of talking about Tropic Thunder um, films like that that don't really get made anymore either, like budget comedies, um, you know, Will Will Ferrell comedies, just comedies that are just idiotic. Um, that you know, in the eighties and nineties, were coming thick and fast. You know, Naked Gun or Rodney Dangerfield stuff or whatever. I just remember, you know, there was one a week mm. that Hollywood would make, and now they don't really make any. Um, and it's just bizarre because <laughs> people love to laugh and people love, you know, love comedy in general. They just don't aren't aren't fed that because Hollywood is much more of a, a business now. The, the, you know the routes for comedians to come through have narrowed there's a lot of stuff on youtube you know the saturday night live stars don't really go heavily into film and obviously judd apatow you know who's brilliant but he changed the game into making it more characterful and less just joke 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 um and i think that you know that sort of had consequences for for the type of comedy that um you know that people used to get um and no longer do yeah it very much struck me as the kind of film that would have had a real which is interesting that's going on streaming now it would have had a real kind of cult following in sort of the late 80s into the 90s you know like you can just see this film being picked up by people particularly students you know kind of and sort of group watching because i think it's it's yeah, it, it, it's such a rare gem with such a kind of anarchic sensibility to it. Um, so is that, is that what you're kind of hoping for from the, the streaming life, that it becomes something that people discover and talk about in the way that those movies that, that you know, that we, that we love from the 80s and 90s were? Particularly, I was thinking like early Coens, you know, being passed around on VHS or whatever. That was, that was always how we see it and how we still see it. I mean, um, you know, the sort of, lineage of it is to go from, from when when television was being made anyway it was monty python you know and the goodies and stuff like that and then the mighty boosh was doing sort of absurdist stuff um you know and, and this is Jinsey came off the back of that with apocalypse clown we always talked about it in terms of you know midnight movies the fe- the film festivals we've gone for are very much um you know we're going for the midnight slot and and absolutely as you say like 20 years ago that would have been what would have happened you know it's it's kind of in that raising arizona it doesn't have a coen brothers sort of uh tone particularly because there's comedy is sort of super precise um but yeah we are we the characters in this are a bunch of idiots like they are in raising arizona let's say um or the big lebowski um and you just follow them around being idiots and you know it's it's funny and so we 
you know, had a long time to work on the script and, you know, maximize those jokes um, and really honed them. So we were definitely ready when we filmed it. And we feel like that's that's the area it would have been in 20 years ago where people would have um, seen it. Students, you know, people who just like absurdist stuff would have really taken it to their hearts. So we don't really know how that works in a streaming context. So obviously going on to Netflix this month and, you know, our, our marketing is, you know, it's just to do with trying to get people to, you know, obviously watch it. I think Netflix isn't a bad place for it because it's, you know, most most people who have a streaming site have Netflix and it certainly uh, has a youthful skew. Um, and, and that's obviously the audience we're going for. It's people who can, you know, share it with their friends and TikTok scenes from it and moments from it and, and try and get it get it marketed in that way um and we just have to see what happens but yeah we haven't had the experience of putting something out in this particular era so we'll have to see there's a lot of uh memeable content in the the film not least the the juggle knot uh which i won't spoil but absolutely uh, in a beautiful moment of foreshadowing and i was like this is going to be this is going to be brilliant when it when it happens um and it was um but just thinking more along the lines of that that kind of the idea of cult because i think that it'd be good to know how you got involved with it because obviously a lot of the people involved uh are part of or were part of dead cat bounce the uh the kind of the amazing uh, irish uh comedy group so can you just talk about sort of meeting those guys and then how how you how this how you came into this world and got on got involved in this project in the first place well, it, go, it goes back over a decade where when we started the production company, um, Welded Tandem, that made This Is Gincy, we were looking for other projects. And we had been to the Edinburgh Fringe and saw Dead Cat Bounce and really liked them. They're an Irish comedy rock band. Um, uh, Jim Wormsley, Shane O'Brien, Damo Fox and Mick Cullen at the time. And we were like, we want to do a project with you. Um, you know, what are your ideas? Because all they did was play comedy rock songs. So there wasn't really a program to be made from that. I mean, they're all on YouTube and they're incredibly funny. So we we developed this idea that was supposed to be for television um, about um, them sort of going around the UK, singing their songs to bewildered audiences and having a rock mentor who would sort of be their godfather and guide them through the uh, the baffling world of rock. Um, and we just couldn't get it away at any of the networks at the time. And so we decided to make a film about it, um, which became Discoverdale. And the film sort of changed its plot in that um, instead of having a rock mentor, we decided that Jim, the, the lead singer, would go in search of his biological father, who he was 99% certain was David Coverdale of Whitesnake. And then taking sort of <laughs> feeding backwards, we were like, Whitesnake are now on tour, so we need to move now, and basically made a sort of spinal tap rockumentary, rockumockumentary about um, them chasing Whitesnake around on their European tour and sort of standing at the stage door 
um, screaming at Coverdale as he came out, I think you're my dad. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, I'm trying to deal with uh, White Snake's management to say, you know, those guys who are standing outside the stage door. Well, that's us. And we're trying to make a film. And this is the plot where, um, you know, where the lead singer thinks that David Coverdale's his dad and he wants to meet him and so on. And just trying to get Coverdale to be in the film for one scene at the end. Um and so that was the sort of mad idea. And we just went for it and got some um, finance from BBC that helped us. I mean, it was made for absolutely nothing, but um, that helped us get it made. And it, it really turned out so well. And Coverdale obviously uh, deigned to give us uh, an hour of his time that really pays off in the film. Um, and so off the back of that, uh, which, you know, which did really well at, at festivals, um, obviously it's, it's such a strange shaped film that it didn't, it didn't get onto telly or anything like that, but, um, or play in cinemas, but it did do really well at festivals and, and it won best international film at the Galway Film Festival, which is kind of the biggest film festival in Ireland. Off the back, so Screen Island, as they are now called, came to us after that and said, you guys are really funny. Um, you know, what's your next project? And we were like, quick, what's our next project? Um, and, and Dead Cat Bounce came up with another project that they'd been working on, which was a kind of theatre piece about um, uh, three clowns who are kind of lost and don't know what to do with themselves and they're sort of out of work and um and just desperate um and that's what we developed into into what became apocalypse clown now that was in kind of 2013 so 10 years ago and we originally uh developed the script into an idea where the clowns get sort of swept up in a comic relief mission to to africa um, and there's a more famous clown who has has an opportunity to go out and do a comic relief spot in Africa, and he um, needs some support clowns, and they go out with him on this mission and absolutely destroy it, you know. Um, and over the years, we we budgeted it. I I brought in a, an Irish production company and you know a co-producer Morgan Bush who produced you know, who was with me the whole time when we produced Apocalypse Clown together. But his company were in charge of raising the finance and we just couldn't raise the money to go to Africa or Tenerife as it would have been and build an African village and so on. So after after several years, the Screen Island just stayed with us as we kept developing this project. Um, George Kane was the director of Discoverdale and he was obviously... Um, has directed Apocalypse Clown. So he was sort of the unofficial other member of Dead Cat Bounce um, on this on this journey. And we we took, you know, uh, you know, 30% off the budget by saying, why don't we just set it in Ireland, um, get rid of Africa, and discovered, much to our joy, that when you have a comedy just about a road trip, you know, most of the jokes can still apply even if it's in Africa or the outskirts of Dublin. And so we kind of transferred the script to Ireland, gave it a new premise, which is that um, this famous clown, instead of going on a comic relief mission, has a 
has a TV special, a sort of comeback special that um, he needs some support clowns for. Um, and they all meet up at this clown funeral. And um, just as the special is about to happen, the power goes out across the whole of Ireland. Um, and so their mission is to sort of drive around Ireland trying to turn the power back on so that the great Alfonso, as he's called, can have his TV special and mayhem ensues. So that's how, how we got there. And, and the budget got to a level where we could raise the money. Um, and then at a certain point, it was like, let's go, let's do it. And sort of we all just sort of cancelled everything and headed to Dublin and made it. So that's how it happened. Fab. Um, I noticed, I mean, it's probably just me knowing you, so I've noticed sort of what I sort of took, I noticed what I took to be your sort of sensibility um, in terms of, you know, there's sort of that blend of the sort of the silly and the macabre, which kind of comes from the Coens, but then also there's a lovely nod to the straight story, I thought, um, uh, in a really lovely scene. I just wondered if you could talk about the collaboration, because I think what's, what's been so interesting about following this journey has been, you know, and, and knowing you is, is, is how much of a kind of creative producer you are. You're not someone who like, you're not someone who likes to get in there and sort of champion your artist. But I wonder if you could just talk about that process of working on the script in terms of the collaboration between you and, and the, and the guys. I think actually the, the, the taste and sensibility was already there. So we all shared a similar sensibility so in in honing the script and making sure that all the jokes landed, um, obviously I read every version and, and gave notes on it and we had long discussions about what to do. But in this instance, they had, you know, we all shared the, the similar, a similar sensibility and we all have a, a little bit of macabre, we love a belly laugh, um, you know, and we just love a bit of absurdism. Um, and so they, most of the ideas and most of the, most of the story came from them because they'd already had this idea about clowns and had done quite a lot of research into what is a clown? How do you become a clown? How do you make a living as a clown? And sort of the, the challenges of that, shall we say. And so a lot of that was already there. I'd obviously worked with George on Discoverdale, and we'd done some other projects in between in television. Um, so we all just have a very natural, um, you know, collaborative sense, but also we're we're pretty aligned all the way. So, so I the reason I love this project so much and stuck with it for ten years is because it was right in my you know uh, ballpark, and I wanted to make sure that it happened. And we all felt the same. We would we were just like. You know, George talks a lot about Mel Brooks, for instance, who I love as well. Um, and we we all felt like nobody's making these comedies anymore. We, you know, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. So, uh, you know, and we, we were trying to get some fairly big name cast to maybe play the great Alfonso. Um, but in the end, we just, you know, that would have helped with the finance, obviously, but we couldn't get anyone Um and so in the end, we would just cast it with people we felt would understand what we were going for um, and give us the, you know, the playfulness, the absurdity and the macabre that, that we felt was in the script. Um, 
And so it was, it's been a very natural collaboration and it's been one of the joys of it actually is when you, when you find someone you, you work really well with, it's just worth sticking with it and pursuing it and chasing it until you get there because you know the rewards are the rewards are there i mean we're obviously very happy with with how it turned out and um and uh you know love showing it to audiences yeah i want to sort of talk a little bit about that in a bit but sort of mention there you know the sort of casting choices and i I don't think you could have found anybody better than natalie palomides um as funzo um just what a what a performance um so moving and, and utterly terrifying at the same time um so yeah like what, can you talk a little bit about sort of how the cast got put together but and obviously you know and david earl as 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 ken is so so good and he's obviously having a bit of a moment as well with with brian and charles well we were really excited to to get david because you know, he's been on, George has worked with him and done some comedy um, pilots and sketches with him um, over the years. So we we knew of him really well and George knew him personally. So when we were like, well, who can play Ken slash Bobo? Um, it was, uh, you know, he was someone that was right at the top of our list if we couldn't get anyone who could bring some money along. And then when Brian and Charles came in, because I'd seen the short of Brian and Charles, um, which I thought was just so delightful and brilliant. And then we're thinking, well, the feature has done so well. It got into Sundance, um, played in the cinemas, you know, uh, in the UK and Ireland and, um, you know, and in a lot of other places. And so we thought well, he's a perfect person for us because he's he absolutely embodies this character and he, you know, he just has the comic sensibility that we have. Um, you know, he's not afraid to go dark and he's just so naturally funny. I mean, I just, we were so happy that he he was up for it, um, you know, and he just brings you so many great tiny moments. His timing is incredible. And so um, once that part was filled, then we had... Um, three other clowns um, to find. And we wanted um, an Irish clown because it was, you know, an Irish project. And so um, we found Fionn Foley through casting with Maureen Hughes, our our amazing casting director in Ireland. Um, And he just, you know, again, we just thought, let's go for absolutely the right people for the part because um, it would just help the film so much. And then Fionn, you know, Fionn came along and just auditioned and just had that sort of prissiness that that uh, Pepe embodies um, while also being able to deliver kind of the, uh, you know, the heartfelt stuff as well. Um, and so it gives a great performance. And then for the great Alfonso, we needed a sort of, you know, a Brian Blessed kind of enormity He's described as a boiled gammon in the in the script, and we were like, "Who, you know, who is that now? Who is that person who can just deliver an enormous performance?" And George was making a show called Wedding Season for Disney Plus, and Ivan Kay was in that. And as soon as you know, as soon as uh, he started working with him, he was like, "I found Alfonso." So Ivan was up for it, um, and so the last part and the trickiest part really was Funzo because. 
she, it was originally a male clown and then we wanted to change it to a female clown just to be um, a bit more unpredictable and a bit more interesting. Um, and Natalie Palamides um, had done a show called Nate. Um, she's American and she, um, you know, really goes out there with her comedy um, and has been quite successful at the Edinburgh Fringe over the last few years. And she has a Netflix special called Nate that I recommend everyone watch where she plays this kind of unreconstructed American man and you know really pushes some boundaries and some barriers and uh, um it's really amazing what she does and so uh we had seen that and thought she's she could be incredible in this so we sent her the script and she was like how did you get inside my head you know she completely had an affinity with it and so um yeah we we got her on board and you know it it's a really special performance. I mean, people who see it, um, you know, it's, it's often one of the first things they they go to with like, who is she? How how did she do that? And uh, um, it's it's you know, it's really well written, but she just adds a whole other other level to it that's that's incredible. So that was you know, it really is a it really is an exciting cast when when you're sort of freed from having to cast someone who will bring money and you can just hone in on exactly who's right for each part. It's quite liberating actually. Yeah. It makes the film harder to sell, but you know, in part it's still worth it because you get the film you want. Yeah, and you just you you go along with the story so completely. They're so they're so convincing in their roles like they just absolutely sell their roles and it was yeah like the film is so well constructed that toward at the end at the end of the i won't give the ending away but but when um jenny the uh the journalist is is giving the this the secret speech you know i was so i was so engaged with these characters that you share their utter bewilderment at what at what she's saying in such a beautiful way because you're 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 kind of invested in the adventure story and you kind of forget that there's this thing and then it's so funny because you're just like what um and she's brilliant um in delivery yeah amy is amy is someone who she's in line of duty and things like that so she's not known really as a comedian and uh but you know she's quite well known in dublin and and you know when we sent it to her you know like a lot of serious actors you know like all the way up to meryl streep or someone you you know who are known for drama you offer them a bit of comedy and they just grab it with both hands um and she was just yeah fantastic and and that speech is it's really something it's really a surprise yeah it's a great surprise um it's so well done um so yeah let, i mean how how did audiences re- receive it i mean you sort of mentioned there you know sort of getting it in front of an audience um one of the things that struck me about the tour is that for all of our kind of uh you know sort of naysaying about the state of comedy and cinemas or whatever like there are still cinemas that really want to to get behind these kinds of films aren't there and they under they understand more than you know, sort of studios or, or distributors, even that there is value in having a group of people together in a room to laugh together and, and and bring out that kind of communal experience. So, 
you know, how, how was it sort of screening it with an audience? Where were the points where you were surprised that, you know, there were things there that, you know, that the sort of the audience has picked up on that you weren't necessarily thought would be the big bits or the, the most memorable bits. Yeah. The, it is the great thing about comedy is you, you can never know, but the laughter doesn't lie. <laughs> so yeah. we, we had our world premiere back at the Galway film festival 10 years later, which was just a thing of beauty in the same cinema packed out and it was an absolute riot. Um, and, you know, so such a joyful moment for us to, to be back there, um, you know, playing it to this festival and the, the, the audience that comes to this festival is, you know, very receptive to Irish product, but to, you know, to all, all the genre of film and, and, uh, for them to take this so, you know, completely to their heart was, was amazing. So I think with comedy, you, there's a few, you always have a few early jokes and if they land, you know, you're going to be all right. And there's a couple of moments early on and especially to an, an Irish audience where there's, you know, I mean, you've seen it, there's sort of Irish jokes that not everyone else would understand and it doesn't matter, but to them, they feel it's an Irish film. And I think, mm you even you're even more receptive if you think oh yeah this is this is a local film in a way um and when those jokes landed then we knew we were in for a great screening and it was it was absolutely amazing so memorable and we ended up winning best for best irish film at the festival which was you know which was the cherry on top and then we took it to fantasia fest in montreal um and there were two sold out screenings there that both you know, went down a storm. And so, you know, we knew at that point, this film definitely works. We've had an Irish film and this is the audience. So they love it. And then we have an international festival um, and, uh, you know, and that's doing doing really well there. And then we brought it to kind of the spiritual home of cult <laughs> cinema in, in the UK, which is the Prince Charles, um, just up Leicester Square. And, um, and, yeah, we had a sold-out screening there that, that, again, did really fantastically well. So we know that the film plays, but because, um, you know, you, there isn't a big star in it, um, it, it had a sort of broad release in, in Ireland, um, but a limited release, I would say, in the UK, just because, you know, you, you can't really get these films into... Uh, the Odeons and views and so on, if there isn't a name on it. Um, and it's, you know, it's a slightly hard film to place into the art house cinemas because it's so broad. Mm. And so we're a little bit caught in between. And we were hoping that David being in Brian and Charles, um, David Earl being in Brian and Charles would give us a bit more license there. But um, yeah, we played in a handful of cinemas, but we we knew we were going out on Netflix at that point anyway, and so we we always knew that that was going to be where the main audience would mm. be for it at that point. But obviously, you know, we all love cinema, we all love being in a cinema, so it was really important for us to have those those cinematic moments that we could enjoy and be there for, and sort of hear the laughter, as as they say in the movie, yeah, the yeah. laughter, the laughter. So. Um, so it's been quite satisfying in that regard. And now we're just waiting to see if, you know, if we can make some waves on, on Netflix um, in the UK and Ireland. 
the laughter it sounds like thunder yeah <laughs> um so sweet yeah just um you mentioned they're sort of playing in different places it's got a really it's got a really international flavor to the film which i guess is kind of part of the way that films are financed nowadays you know there's you know some of it was shot in belgium i think um you know how did you sort of tread the line between sort of you know needing to open it up in terms of the you know sort of the the partnerships without it feeling because it never does like you know you're just bringing in people to satisfy certain criteria we we actually shot it all in within a 30 mile radius of dublin mm. but we had belgian money um and i think cuz ireland is still in the eu they have access to european funding um quite readily and yeah we our last piece of funding that allowed us to make the movie came from belgian and belgian um film fund and the the uh deal with that was we had to hire belgian heads of department and crew and do a lot of the post with belgian companies and so on so that was how you made it work so as far as i could see they give you a whole load of money and then you just give it all back to belgian people um and so everyone's happy we get to make our film and belgian people are working with us and uh um it all worked out really well and so our head of makeup and costume who are really significant in the film were, were belgians um and we had all sorts of other crew and and did did the post with belgian companies so it's just a necessity from what i understand of making low budget independent films you just find the money where you can and so there will be you know they have to sign off on the script too and i think in this case there is a universality to they have clowns in belgium you know <laughs> so so people understand the story um and even though it's you know set in an irish context um the story of being a sad displaced clown with no future and no friends is something that is also uh, pertinent <laughs> to the belgian people yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask like what's the Belgian sense of humour, but if they had script sign off then it's pretty it's pretty clear they, they get it. But but that but that was one of the last things I wanted to talk about really was that the the universality I think does come from the characters, but also from the road movie. You know, I think that it's so it, it, it's just what it's a great way of of kind of having characters have to spend time together. I think people understand that that sort of aspect of it. Um you know, was was that a touchstone for for you all in terms of road movies? And were there any particular examples where you were like, "This is this is kind of where we're we're sort of in conversation with"? Well, you mentioned the straight story, um, which is definitely a movie that we talked about. Um, you know, and so that scene with the tractor is is a really nice, uh, really nice homage mm-hmm. to the great David Lynch and all that. But um, yeah, we just felt like also that Ireland is such a beautiful country. And even though we weren't going to be in Africa, where they were originally driving across the plains of Africa, um, Ireland has its own plains in a way that are all green and beautiful and occasionally boggy. Um, And that we we should show that and exploit that. And that was going to be a major character in the film. So you go from, you know, the one thing a road movie gives you is different visual uh, 
different visual looks as you go through that just keep the audience interested and on their toes. And the brilliant thing about this was, I mean, the, the story is obviously that they're driving across the whole of Ireland trying to figure out how to switch the power back on. But as I said, we didn't, you know, we were within a 30 mile radius of Dublin the whole time. And there's just so many different landscapes uh, there that we could exploit to, to give a sense of us just traveling everywhere as we went along. And so we're really happy with that. And it is an incredibly beautiful country and the landscape's a big part of that. And so, yeah, we, that's why we knew it would work. I think when we decided to change it from Africa to Ireland, it's like you can still do a road movie there because there's you know it's just so great to to film Ireland and it's um it's something we could really exploit and would give a scale and would just make the film seem you know not small mm. I mean that's one of the things that all independent filmmakers are sort of fighting against is you don't want your movie to feel just small and to feel its budget and obviously we had a you know, a small budget, but we feel like we absolutely maximised it. And there are certain ways now with, for instance, drones being very um, uh, affordable that give you scale that you used to not be able to get, you know, because of the budget. But now you can you can give a sense of, you know, scale and movement and all those shots that, you know, 20 years ago you would have had to pay a fortune for, you can now get with a drone. And on a road movie, it really helps just move things along and so that was how we we pulled it off and um sort of made the film we feel is not you know it doesn't it doesn't wear its budget on its sleeve it feels like a dynamic film that belongs in a cinema yeah for sure and i think you know the the, the makeup and the costume do a huge bit you know i mean this is so it, the look of it is, is 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 so good but also i think the other thing is just it was nice to see different parts of ireland you know, on screen, because obviously you either shoot in Dublin or you shoot right out on the coast on the other side, you know, so to actually spend some time in, even though it's close, but just in a different kind of landscape, that always helps, I think, when you're being inventive about where you're shooting um, to make that that kind of, the budget go further, because it just, it, there is a real, you know, it's like, oh, I haven't seen this Irish landscape anywhere, you know, on screen, but so that was that was really great. Um, something else I was going to ask there. No, that was it. Um, so the dreaded question, I mean, it sounds like um, this is going to be a long-term collaboration for you, like that, that you're going to keep working with the, with this same team of, of, of people, you know, and, um, and hopefully there'll be something that will, will follow uh, apocalypse clown. Well, we definitely hope so, you know, it, with, with, with independent filmmaking, you you never know, but it was a very happy experience for all of us and a really, uh, you know, successful collaboration um, on many levels for us. And so we're definitely, you know, asking ourselves what the next one is. It'd be nice to have a trilogy um, and sort of push that narrative to to people who are funding us. And, and you know, there's obviously the hope that if you can cobble together a film that's half decent, they'll give you money the next time. Um and so, yeah, we're definitely going to keep talking about it and try and develop some ideas. We've got a couple of ideas that we're discussing that that we we will be able to um, pitch to Screen Island or whoever um, when they're ready. So that that would hopefully be the plan. Yeah, because um, you know it's 
it's I make mostly television, as you know, and um, it's much more reliable. And, um, you know, the budgets are bigger now. And um, but there's something about cinema that's just special. And, you know, we you want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of it. It feels like, you know, it needs all of us with this passion for it to to keep to keep trying to keep it in, you know, in in existence in a certain way, like in our infinitesimal way, mm. infinitesimal way. We, you know, we love it so much and we want to we want to contribute to it any way we can. And so, um, yeah, I'm hoping that we can uh, we can make something else down the road, hopefully not another 10 years something before that fingers crossed um yeah we are we are film people um and yeah you've done you've done another sterling service to film culture with this piece of piece of brilliant comedy so thank you for your service to cinema <laughs> uh, we will yeah we'll have you back on when the next one's done and probably before that uh, to your to your more familiar to our listeners um co-hosting duties so thank you james as ever uh for, for taking the time to uh yeah to talk to us and yeah congrats on the film it's, it's wonderful thank you mate thank you always a pleasure Thanks, James, for your time. And yeah, hopefully people will be able to, to catch the film uh, on Netflix uh, in the very near future. So, Dario, what did you make of all of this chat about Apocalypse Clown? Yeah, um, I have to confess, when I first started watching the film and like, you know, it's really hard, isn't it? When you're, you, you, you know, the person who's produced it and all the work and the labor that's go, gone into it. I think, oh, no, I don't know whether I'm going to enjoy this that much. And it's like, oh, shit, uh, <laughs> what am I going to say? How am I going to deal with it? But uh, funnily enough, uh, on the last episode, I mentioned a film that really sort of grew on me, and and this this grew on me as it as it developed, and I think particularly because I think it was so well cast, and it's interesting in the interview, he says James says that there's no real message, but I really liked the the sort of knowing texture of the film, um, the characterizations and the culture of clowns. Um, written with regards to the sort of that that sense of we all know we there's a kind of idea of what what clowns represent in 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 culture today in the sense that they are kind of past their sell by date as a sort of comic you know craft in many ways and i love the way that it kind of plays on that i mean the idea for example that they that the horror clown is kind of has turned over to the dark side because clowning is not functioning, you know, as it, as it, you know, perhaps once did. I thought that works really well. I like the sort mm. of ideas of the, the professional jealousy and the, and the pettiness of it. And that sense that there's that you know, the, the power stakes are so low, but yet the, the, the avarice and the jealousy of, of somebody who's moderately or not even moderately successful um, you know, are so high against those who don't have that position. Um, and I love the jokes around the avant-garde clown, 
which kind of just means in that circles that, you know, if you're an avant-garde clown, you're just basically not funny. And I really liked how it, how it lent, you know, how it, how it lent into the absurd. And, and obviously James sort of uh, talked about that. I love the way it, it lent into that absurdism where there wasn't a sort of expectation of, oh, we're, you know, you're going to get a meaning and a message at the, at the very end. You can kind of just chill out and, and take it for what it was. And yeah, just that sense of a, a profession or a craft that's built around artistic performance that definitely comes out of a different age and has no place in in the modern world and the and it, it lines up very well with the conceit i think um of the fact that the the digital you know all the the electricity kind of fails as you said sort mm. of at the, at the beginning and that spawns the journey i mean you know i i think that you could look at it and say that there is a little bit, bit of you know, Edgar Wright, Shaun of the Dead in terms of structural organization, which felt a bit, you know, it, it, it was what it was. I, 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 I don't want to say derivative, but because there's so many films that are set up on that kind of conceit, you know? Um, yeah. But I thought the interview was really interesting as well. Particularly, I think there's a lot of lessons there on, on independent filmmaking from James, you know, somebody who's been working in the film industry in, in, in his particular vein for so long, you know, and that, that sort of, fighting the good fight of getting funding, getting projects off the ground, and also not being ashamed to sort of say, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we can feed the algorithm with this film in a, in a mm. particular way. You know, I think a lot of us, including us sometimes, can be quite po-faced about, you know, well, you know, film should be an art form and you shouldn't be tailoring the, the craft of putting a film together to, is it memeable, you know, at any given yeah. Uh, yeah. To make to make it saleable in that sense, and I think maybe we, have, like the likes of us who consider ourselves kind of in a pretentious sense cinephiles, have to kind of get over that, and it's just part of what getting an independent film made and distributed and and pe- you know people seeing it is, it, you know, it's part of the deal. Um, and yeah, just just a lot of interesting stuff which I think we can we can continue to talk about now um, regarding the. the the place of comedy in, in film culture. And, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of films together there and I was trying to think and put together films that, that could potentially get onto a list of greatest films of all time from the last 50 years. And I know you mentioned Spinal Tap, mm. you mentioned Annie Hall, you mentioned With Noel and I, but I, I would add to that maybe Big Lebowski, Blazing Saddles, yeah. Life of Brian, uh, Team America, World Police, um school of rock maybe even you know what i mean it's like i think yeah. all of those films maybe did something new with comedy um in a way that yeah. you could kind of align them with the the concept of of being a you know a great movie for the ages but yeah just generally to finish off my my sort of ramble on the film i was thinking about what what james said in terms of the way that people understand and appreciate comedy and why comedies don't get made or perhaps the ones that do get made sit in a certain niche. You know, it's like the idea of a, you know, a big drama with big names getting released in the cinema. Nobody sort yeah. of still blinks an eyelid at that, even though, you know, if, if nobody yeah. goes to see it, nobody blinks, blinks an eyelid that, that you would still try to release at the cinema. But I was thinking I, I did watch that Jennifer Lawrence comedy, No Hard Feelings, which really was a sort of ode to the, to the, the 80s sex comedies like Porky's. 
And I, when I was mm. watching it, I was find, finding myself thinking, why has Jennifer Lawrence made this movie? It's like, but 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 again, is that my own prejudice? Should I be thinking why why well why not? You know, she's probably got the kudos to get that off the ground, and it's a it's an interesting throwaway, but but you know, f- funny in and of itself piece of work. And and I think you know, there's other films like Bodies, 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 and Bottoms that are actually aping that kind of you know Porky's morphing into American Pie and then Judd Apatow kind of lineage. So there's definitely a, an audience out there, but I, ju- I just think maybe the the circles of cinephilia that we sort of uh, maybe associate ourselves with do have that that kind of problem with, with comedy more broadly. Wow. Um, lots there, man, lots there. Indeed. Sorry, I should have broken that up a little bit. That's what you call a, 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 a monologue. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it's really, it's a really nice uh, sort of collection of thoughts. I think, um, yeah, because I think one of the things that was I sort of felt when I was talking to James and he was sort of bringing up we were talking about the comedy, you know, in the in the sight and sound list and sort of comedy more broadly is that I feel I feel personally, yeah, that I am sort of caught between two schools a lot of the time because I do have that kind of pretentious cinephilia hat, but I also have the, you know the broad comedy dumb and dumber and i love dumb and dumber kind of like appreciation and you know i i acknowledge that it almost i do kind of think of it sometimes in a kind of binary even though i don't want to i want i want them to just be part of the same conversation a lot of the time and not in a kind of ironic way not in a kind of knowing yeah postmodern or or you know sort of quotation marks kind of way just in a like it's all part of the same thing you know and that was what was really interesting about James sort of coming prepared with that was a kind of another reminder. And we talked about it when we did the episode, you know, and I, that was the very reason I picked a straight out comedy was because I wanted that part of my cinephilia and cinema as an art form kind of recognised in the list because it is it is so rare. But it was kind of still shocking to see how few films had got had got into that space. Um, in re- In response to the idea of like, why does Jennifer Lawrence make it i think it goes to what we were saying in the um in the conversation about you know it, comedy is hard you know mm. i think that actors like the challenge you know i think un- what's unfortunate is that there's not that much challenging material around i mean there, there is always that thing of yeah oh there are no comedies released and then you list sort of 10 that have come out in the last few years or whatever but but there certainly is the isn't the same critical mass that there was in the 80s and 90s you know Sure. You can always pull things out and be like, "Oh yeah, Book Smart was yeah. was a couple of years ago. That was, you know, was great, but yeah, but there used to be sort of five or six of those a year, you know, um, in the cinemas. You know that, that they they do feel more like kind of yeah, sort of white whales uh, now. Um, but I I do think that you know, and you're right. I think there's a sense like, oh, these people make it, you know. So The Rock does the big, the big splashy remake comedies you know he does the jumanjis he does the baywatches like that and he, he does he handles that with kevin hart kind of thing um so we don't need to do anything else it's like well actually yeah we, we are really missing missing a lot when we're not thinking about all of those great comedies and where where we can be sort of yeah even yeah sort of fulfilling audiences who, who you know it's the idea that we don't laugh anymore yeah. or that we don't want to laugh anymore i just find kind of mad yeah um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was going to go down a weird kind of weird rabbit hole then, in terms of like the you know because you mentioned the algorithm and then is remembered that 
a few year, a couple of years ago that Facebook admitted that their algorithm is built to make people feel Angry. worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's designed that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I wondered whether I wondered whether part of it is is to not give people <laughs> pleasure. Mm. You know, and, and I don't know. Yeah. Um, let's not go there. No. That's a that's a weird kind of tinfoil hat thinking. But but I do think there is something. It, 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 it doesn't really make sense because these films often make money and actors want to do them when they're when they're really good. Yeah, I mean, I guess just with the Jennifer Lawrence thing, it was the kind of I just got the sense that this was kind of going backwards a little bit because she's a great comedy actress. And, you know, if you look mm. at Silver Linings Playbook or Hustle, she's the comedy element of those of those films, I think. But it was just the kind of the sense of this genre, this particular kind of gross kind of sexually orientated comedy and i was like mm, yeah that's an interesting choice really when she could probably get a comedy off the ground that had a yeah. you know a bigger scope i suppose that's that's kind of what i was what i was getting at and it's interesting what you say there about the broad comedy because yeah. i'm not that's why i was a sort of worried about watching apocalypse clown because i remember us um sort of disagreeing over that bruno de mont comedy with juliette binoche in it which to me was just you know oh yeah, yeah it was like 100 minutes of people falling over and speaking in silly voices and i was like that's just not that just wasn't funny you know um yeah, yeah. but yeah and, and again i i'm quite happy to lean into the the sort of pretentiousness of of not being a great fan of that 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 kind of stuff but you know i think that there's you know obviously there's many people who are so that's fine um but yeah i mean it's it's uh it, it, i think that this is gonna find a home on on netflix for sure and it's a you know it's measures up and is as, as good you know when you sit down and actually think about what you know you're laughing at it but also think about what it's what it's doing there is a sort of level there you think oh yeah no this mm. is actually it knows what it's trying to intend here which is and it's succeeding so therefore you know kudos for that you know especially a project that's obviously takes a lot of work to not just get off the ground but then to get made you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. Cool. So we'll we'll wrap it up there because there's another episode for you to go to very quickly. Just to say, um, Neil's LFF bonuses are obviously still available. So go over and uh, check those out. We've got um, some nice comments on uh, Neil's um, reviews. There was uh, Neil. I just wanted to say this on Twitter. The uh, Screen Island had picked up our our review or your particularly your review of that they may face the rising sun so uh, that got quite a nice hit on uh, social media from uh, from screen island so uh, yeah all good there but um i'll look forward to uh, speaking to you in about 30 seconds time about a completely different film <laughs>